following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, If you're just joining us uh, or haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are in a series working all the way through the book of Hebrews. Started a couple weeks ago. This series will take us 24 weeks all the way up to Easter. The title of the series is Never Better. And uh, the reason for that is that the book of Hebrews, uh, though being full of wonderful truth, its, its primary message is that Jesus is better than anything or anyone else that we would be tempted to worship. And and, amen. The writer focuses uh, on one way throughout the book. His argumentation is kind of focused on this this idea. Were were Christians in that time that were of Hebrew descent, they may have been particularly tempted to miss this reality. And how would they do that? Well, by either clinging in full or in part to the old covenant that Christ fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. And so you'll see that uh, throughout the book, the, the author will be looking at some element of the Old Covenant and showing us that Jesus is better. And just because perhaps your primary struggle uh, with placing your worship, affection, and adoration in the wrong place would not be uh, you know, an over-focus on following Old Testament rules and customs and sacrificial laws and all of that, doesn't mean the book of Hebrews doesn't have practical help for us today. It absolutely does. Um, One thing we should not do, it's important we don't do this, we must not read this book and get the wrong idea about the Old Covenant. Okay, The Old Covenant was not bad. The Old Covenant was good. God established the Old Covenant. And when God does something, it's good. Okay, That's really important. But what the Old Covenant was is a placeholder in God's plan of redemption. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, it was a tutor meant to teach people that the perfect righteousness that is required to be in perfect relationship with a perfectly holy God could never be attained through the efforts of imperfect people. That was the big point of the law. The law was really a a precursor meant to lead us to an understanding of our need for Christ. And this is why a perfect Savior had to rescue, redeem, and restore us. This is why the true righteousness that God requires was going to have to be graciously granted as a gift to those who would receive it by faith. So, in chapter 1, we see the author begin laying out the argument for the superiority of Jesus to anyone and anything. We were shown at the beginning of chapter 1 that the Old Testament prophets, and again, God used the Old Testament prophets mightily. They were not bad, but they were given pieces of the puzzle, whereas Jesus was the whole glorious image made clear when all those pieces were fit together. Then, since many in that time were tempted to worship angels, we talked about this as a result of the, the idea that angels helped to deliver the law to Moses, who, you know, that's a big deal. And so there was this 
this temptation then to worship angels. So because of that, uh, and we got to remember, angels are incredibly powerful beings. They are not bad. Well, except for the bad ones, but we call those demons, right? Okay, angels are not bad. Angels are servants, servants of the one who should be worshipped. And we noted last week that anytime someone tried to worship an angel in scripture, the angel told them to knock it off, right? So the big idea there is if, if somehow you're in a situation where someone or something purporting to be an angel is receiving worship from you, that's not an angel, buddy, that's a demon. Get up out of there. Amen. Okay? Real angels that are following the Lord are not going to receive your worship because God alone deserves to be worshiped. And prophets and angels are examples of things that humans tend to worship because at least one reason that happens is we tend to like something between us and the white hot light of God's indescribable glory. We like a buffer. Why? Well, some of it has to do with the fact that we, we, can, we can wrap our heads around finite prophets and finite angels. But we, we can't fully comprehend an eternal and infinite God. It, it's dizzying to the senses to even try to consider the infinite and eternal nature of God. And so we're a little more comfortable maybe finding a, an in-between. Maybe hoping that we can stay out of that white-hot light of his glory and, and whatever that may reveal. And, and I would submit to you, if the writer of Hebrews could have jumped in a time machine to come get a look at the church in our day, I think it's quite possible this book might have been 113 chapters instead of 13 chapters to address the things and people we are tempted to worship instead of God. Now, as we, as we move into chapter 2, the author is going to take a short break from showing how Jesus is superior to tell us how we should respond. So here we're going to get some application of the argumentation we've studied together so far. Okay? And that's, this is part of why it's very important as we work through books of the Bible. If for whatever reason you're traveling or, or maybe you're serving somewhere in, in the house and, and you're not able to be with us in the sermons, we're, we're tracking through a letter where, where argumentation is built from the beginning to the end. And so if you're kind of jumping in and jumping out, it's going to be hard for you to track. So I would encourage you to try to keep up. Thankfully, we live in a time where uh, things are digitally recorded and, and you can go back and look at it. So I would encourage you to do that. Try to keep up. One other quick thing I want to say is I know that for some, uh, the book of Hebrews seems, and it is, this is a fair assessment, seems to be a bit of a, a heavy theological lift. You know what I mean when I say that? There's a lot of kind of deep water to swim through in the book of Hebrews. And for some of you, that may not be your preference. You may like, you may, when I heard, when you heard me say that today the author's going to pivot to some application for his argumentation, you may have thought, oh, finally, enough theology, enough of all the theology. Like, what, what do you think we are, Pastor Vince? You think we're theologians? We're just simple people here. We don't, we don't necessarily care about all this deep theology. Well, I, I just want to encourage you that um, I, I actually think each one of you are a theologian, at least in one sense. I actually think everyone is. Now, there's different definitions for a theologian. Let me read you this one. Someone who is learned in theology or who speculates about theology. 
Who among us does not speculate about theology? Now, if you're lost because you're not sure about what theology means, theology is simply the study of God. Some would call it the study of religions. There's broader definitions. And you can find other definitions for a theologian that would, that would more pigeonhole it into somebody that is highly educated and highly focused upon the study of religions or deities. However, I think it's important for us to recognize that in, in this sense, we all are theologians. You might be a bad theologian, but you are a theologian. In this sense, an atheist is a theologian. Everyone's speculating about the nature of God, even if their speculation is that he doesn't exist. They have some idea about the reality of all of this. They have some worldview driving the way they interpret all that is happening around them. And so at one level, we, 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 should, we should not shy away from theology. I want to encourage you to not kind of check out as this book takes us into deep water. Because proper application is driven by good theology. You really, what you don't want is for me to just stand up here and spoon feed you what to think and how to act and, and that not be driven by deep truth that is rooted in the scriptures. You want the truth of the scriptures to be so written upon your heart that it drives your application. And the book of Hebrews is going to give us that opportunity. Amen. This book is going to push us to mature as followers of Jesus. One person over here was almost excited about that. Are you guys against growing? Like you just want to stay where you're at? Okay, amen. I kind of anticipated how really good that would go over, but at least I got to say it. Amen. Okay, so let's read chapter two, verses one through eight together. Now, I took the time to rehash chapter one with you, particularly because as, as he pivots to application, the beginning of chapter two is for this reason. So if you just start chapter two, you got no idea what's going on in chapter one. You could miss the reality that now he's going to tell us, here's, here's how to respond to the fact that Jesus is superior to Old Testament prophets that you think are pretty awesome and angels that you think are really awesome. Jesus is superior to all of them. So because of that, for that reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will." For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Praise God for his word. Clearly we have some work to do. Let's do it, okay? Now, <clears throat> first of all, coming back to verses 1 through 4, it is vital that we notice that the warning here is about neglecting, not rejecting this great salvation. 
What does that mean? That means that this primarily is not an admonition to those who do not yet believe. Notice how the author includes themselves in verse 3. He said, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is not talking to someone that, that has yet to trust Christ that they should not neglect this idea of salvation they've not yet grabbed a hold of. This is a warning to those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but have had the grace of God poured out upon them. It's a warning to them that we must heed carefully what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's important. And again here we see this comparison with verse 2 describing the law and verse 3 and 4, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Where do we see that? For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Again, that's a reference back to this idea that the law of Moses was delivered by angels. All right, So that's what he's talking about, the law. That word spoken through angels. If it proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, the apostles, and then God also testifying with him, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So what we see there is, you know, maybe it's self-explanatory right now, I just want to make sure I don't leave anybody behind. He's saying, look, if the law which was given by angels... If we held to that, if there was just punishment doled out for disregard to that, we have now this gospel of Christ that came from the king himself. Will we not also take that seriously? That's, that's the thrust of what he's saying here. And this is one of the main reasons, this, what we see here in, in verse 3, it's unlikely to me that Paul wrote this book. It's probably the last thing I'll say about the authorship throughout this series. I don't know. I'm not promising anything, but I think maybe it's the last thing I'll say about it. When he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard? So this writer is putting themselves as a secondhand hearer from the apostles of this word of the Lord, that being the gospel of Christ. And if you go through Paul's letters, you just don't see him talk about himself that way. Paul actually goes to great lengths to let people know in no uncertain terms, he received the gospel of Christ from Christ himself, that he was an apostle as was James, Peter, John, and the rest. Okay. It, it came a different way. It was after the resurrection that Jesus came and gave him the gospel. But Paul's point is, I didn't receive the gospel from man. I received it from Christ. Okay, now he went and confirmed it with those who were proven apostles, which is a wise thing to do. Like, hey, we're all hearing the same thing, right? Yes, but that's the point. So th this, th the, way, the way this writer writes it is that they, they received this word seemingly from those who heard it from the Lord, which is the apostles. So we still have apostolic connection and authority, uh, you know, kind of running through this book. And so that's also important. I talked about all that the first week. And uh, you can go look at that if you didn't catch it. Okay. Verse 2 through 4. Now, what, now we've explained it. Now, what, is it, what does that do? How do we, what do we do about this? How do we think about it? I want to submit to you that verses 2 through 4 decimate the spongy, weak, gelatinous view of what it means to live under God's grace. Many people 
You guys excited with that opening? You know, we're, <laughs> some of you know what's about to happen. I'm just working in the text, man. I, that's all I can do. This is, this is where we're at today. It's good for us, though. Many people are lulled into a false sense that apathy or half-hearted obedience to God is a-okay with him because we're under the new covenant of grace. Almost as if, like, Old Testament God was, was hangry, and so someone got him a Snickers bar, and then he chilled way out and sent Jesus to kind of smooth things over and let everyone know it's, it's actually cool if, if we do our own thing and, and make our own rules because, well, you know, grace and stuff. That's sometimes how, the, they wouldn't say it exactly that way, but how functionally we approach this. And it's, it's totally wrong. There's no way, man, because Jesus came... And, and yes, he flipped physical tables in the temple, but friends, he was flipping metaphorical tables constantly, all the time. You might think, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, let me just, let's think about some things that Jesus said in his time, in his day, what he was coming and how, what he was correcting. Jesus said, you guys have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, under the law. Right? Someone knocks your tooth out, you get to knock their tooth out. Now, I did, you know, aside from Christ, that makes perfect sense to me. I don't know about you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth makes much more sense than what Jesus ended up saying, which is, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. Hold on, what? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like, I, tooth for tooth makes sense. You got mine, buddy, I get yours. Right? But Jesus came and said something wild. If they smack you on the cheek, man, turn to them the other one. Okay. Jesus came and told them, you guys have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. Love your neighbor is tough. Hate your enemy makes perfect sense. If they hate me, why wouldn't I hate them? That just naturally makes sense. But Jesus came and said, no, love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. I'm trying to show you metaphorical table flips. There was a, there was a way that we, we thought we understood. Jesus came and said, don't just give to the needy. Do it without telling everybody so they tell you how great you are. Don't just do the right thing and give to the needy, but do it in such a way that no one's going to celebrate you. What is Jesus doing? He's grabbing this thing and taking it down to the level of motive. Way beyond just outward expressions. Uh-oh. He said, when you pray, don't try to impress people with long prayers or eloquent words. He said, when you fast, keep it to yourself. That too. Don't be doing this stuff to try to get the applause of man. It's the wrong motive. And apparently God cares about that. I mean, can you imagine? We, we've all, you know, we've all heard this stuff because we've been... We're sitting in the place in history that we are. Can, we, can you imagine genuinely walking in here today and thinking that what God thought was right was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, as long as I'm praying and as long as I'm giving to the needy, that's what God wants me to do. Imagine this, just try to put yourself in the place of this being the first time you ever heard, no, that's not good enough. God cares about why you're doing all that stuff. Oh, that, that'll shake you up. It should shake you up right now. Even you knew it, and it still shake you a bit. 
Amen. He said, don't just not sleep with someone you're not married to. Don't even lust after them in your heart. Wow. Okay. That's a big call. What do we see here? Broadly, we see that when you actually listen to the teachings of Jesus, you realize he's not lowering the bar on anything. He's raising it in every place. They say, I don't know. Well, I got another one for you. What about this one? I know you'll really like this one. This one's going to get everyone excited. Boy, if you don't amen on this one, I'll be so surprised. That's a, that's a slab of sarcasm like thick cut baloney right there. I know you're not going to like this one, but it's okay. I'm going to say it. What about this one? Don't think just because you tithe, you're truly honoring God with your finances. Look at this woman right here putting in two copper coins. She's giving more than all the rest because she's giving all that she has. Where's the thunderous amens? I, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Amen. Now, honestly, as I, even as I say that, just because of how I'm wired and, and because I know this flock, I, I'm tempted to soften that for you and to go into some big disclaimer about how that doesn't mean we should all give everything we have financially for the sake of the gospel. But you know what? I, I think it's actually really good for us just to sit with those words of Jesus and just wrestle with them a bit. Think about it, man. Because at, at the bare minimum, <laughs> at the bare minimum, it does lead us to understand that part of how we keep ourselves out of the love and worship of money is to make sure that our giving is sacrificial. That we're giving up some things to give towards the greatest thing. And, you know, if it's your first Sunday, I would encourage you to ask somebody, because I know there's this kind of common critique, and I'm sure it's fair in many places, that the church just is always talking about money. I, I just, if it's your first time today, I would just encourage you, you know, hang around, eat chili, ask somebody who's a member here, how often... I address money from the pulpit. If, if I'm failing this congregation anywhere, it's probably in the lack of how much I address the potential love of money in their hearts. Because I know about that, I know how many charlatans and fakes and, and hucksters are out there, and I know that that's a wound for many people, and so it, sometimes it makes me overly bashful to address things like this. Not because I'm afraid somebody's gonna be mad at me, but I don't wanna hurt people with this truth. But honestly, there's a reason why Jesus talked about the danger of the love of money so much. There's a reason why he said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. There's a reason why he showed up and again, flipped the table of people's understanding around these things. Jesus came and as a result of the message of grace he was bringing, it did not make everything just happy-go-lucky. Let's just do what we feel and then we can call out grace to understand the great love of God revealed in Christ to understand, to see Christ come to take on human flesh and to live a perfect life, to die on the cross and to rise again, to fulfill the promises of old, to see God's not only love played out, but his power verified that for thousands of years, he was letting us know through the prophets and puzzle pieces, this is what's going to happen. And you see the whole puzzle laid down, boom, he's got the power to back up what he said. What that should lead us to is not a lackadaisical obedience to him or a lackadaisical sense of, of affection 
and allegiance. Grace should ratchet up our obedience and our desire to. Grace should be able to, grace is the thing that will take us from moralistic obedience just to hopefully maybe escape hell or maybe the other Christians around me will think I'm a good person or whatever other jacked up motive could be driving our obedience. Grace is the thing that can take us out of that prison and right to the place of where it is because of God's love for us and our love for him that we seek to obey. And that's really the bottom line. The big point of all this is that if God was serious about obedience to the law delivered by angels, do we think he's going to be less serious about the gospel given to us by God the Son himself? The gospel message of God's grace, friends, it's not some jelly-spined, free-for-all, do-whatever-seems-right-to-you, and don't worry, because it's God's job to forgive you. I mean, I've heard that be somebody's response before. Some... Heard somebody questioned, hey, what if, what if you die and you find out this God that you're denying, this God even that you kind of spit venomous vitriol towards and try to encourage other people away from him, what if, what if you find out that's, he's the guy, there's a throne and he's sitting on it, what, what, what happens then? This guy's response was, oh, well, it's his job to forgive me, isn't it? Easy. That's not the way. The gospel message is that God will never be satisfied with mere outward appearance of morality, friends. He wants your heart. He wants not just your obedience, but the motive of your obedience to be love for him. He wants every shred of doubt that he loves you with an indescribably great love to be shattered when you see that Jesus came as was promised and he died as was promised and he rose from the grave as was promised. This, there's two ways to receive what I'm saying to you right now. One is, is to panic to understand that God cares about your motives, not just your outward actions. Because some of you are, 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 and this is a healthy thing to be doing right at this juncture of this study, you're starting to think through, boy, some of my thoughts and what goes on in my heart yeah, that is problematic. <laughs> it does not line up with this. Amen. But, but friends, aren't you, so you can, you can be sad about this reality that if, if you had some idea that like um, grace means we get to be sloppy and that's like the way you understood it and you found some kind of like temporary comfort in that idea, if, that's, if that sacred cow is being kicked over for you right now, like you, you can be sad about that or you can realize what it actually means. <laughs> what it means is you have a God that is not just about having a bunch of obedient slaves for the, for the purpose of, of being able to prove that he can control people. He is not the maniacal dictator so many have, have accused him of being. This is a father who loves us and wants a genuine relationship with you. And that's actually reason for rejoicing. That's a reason to be really, really thankful. He won't, he, you, you, could, you could pull off almost perfect outward morality and God will not be satisfied with that if he doesn't have your heart. He wants you, not your performance. That's good. That is good. If, you're, if you can't grab yet right now at this moment that it's good, I'd be happy to talk to you more about it because it's really good. It's the best. It's what differentiates him from so many other religious philosophies. 
And, and in case all that wasn't enough, the, the, the writer here goes on to say, you know, not only like Jesus himself, all he did and said, but then he anoints the apostles to perform incredible miracles by his power to further testify to the legitimacy of the message. Right? I mean, this is part of what we see happening in the book of Acts. You got apostles walking by the gate called beautiful. You got crippled people uh, being made whole. You got Paul being bitten by a viper and just shaking it off in the fire. All these different things, right? God works by his power through miracles to verify, yes, what these guys are teaching is actually what Jesus said and told them to go teach. How do you know? Because God is through them doing some things that can't be explained other than God is popping up and doing some stuff. Amen? And so... This warning is pointed towards those who belong to Jesus, primarily, I already said that, but but this principle does extend to those who don't yet follow him, I I think at least in this way. Because when the writer here brings up this idea that, you know, God verified what was going on here through through miracles and and the power of his spirit working in the apostles, um, as, as a kind of a validation for an atheistic point of view or, or a critique of the idea that we, we would be so kind of foolish and antiquated as, as to believe in God. Um, I've, I've, I've often personally had conversations like this, and then I've heard this said broadly. But this question kind of being posed as if, as if God is uh, this amazing player of hide-and-seek, and, and, and that he has chosen to keep himself so concealed that it's ridiculous to believe in him, because if God was real, why doesn't, why doesn't he just show up and tell us? And I, I don't know what people have in their minds when, when, they, when they say that. I, I, I guess I imagine, you know, pro, they're, they're probably thinking, well, if, if God would just crack the clouds open, pop, you know, pop some manifestation of a human-looking head, this is God, right? So he has no real form. But let's say just for our sake, he takes that on. I just got deeper than it needed to be. So God pops down through the clouds. That, that, I just, that could be a rabbit trail for days. Jesus, help us. Don't think about that. Come back to the point of what I'm saying. Basically... I think they just want God to crack the sky open and and go, hey, I'm God and I'm here. And and, and what I want to say to to this question, and it's it's fair, man, I get it. If if someone hasn't been presented these ideas in this way, I've got all the compassion in the world for them wishing God would do something to to show that he's real. But with with, with as as little snarkiness as as I can as I can conjure the answer to the question, why doesn't God do something incredible to show us that he's real? The answer is he did. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, did a bunch of wild miracles, died on a cross, said beforehand, I'll be back, and then was. You might be saying, oh, well, you know, how do you know? Well, then I would say, fair. That, that's a great question, right? Because there's lots of books that, that, and there's lots of stories that purport to tell us how the world was made and what we should do about it. I, I get that. So this, let's critique it. Let's think about it. My question is, if we're going to disregard the fact that we have so many people today, right now, 2,000 plus years later, worshiping Jesus, we, we have to explain, we got to explain that somehow. We, we, we can't prove anything because we don't have a time machine. You understand me? If the only way we're really going to prove anything, one way or the other, is somebody invents a time machine. So I hope someone's working on that. That'd be great. Get a definitive word on the thing. However, in lieu of having a time machine, the only option we have is to look at all of what we can 
and, and come to a deduction of what is the most reasonable thing to assume based on what, all the information that we have. Okay, so here's what we have. We have a humble Galilean peasant from this little backwater, like even among the subjugated people that he was from, under the rule of Rome, the, the Romans, who were really running the show at this point, so you get this one little subgroup of people that the Romans rule, and then, and then as far as they're concerned, this guy comes from a town that none of them even care about. It's such a little podunk place, not born into power, not born into influence, not born with any of the leg up that it would take to end up being a guy that's, that starts walking around and having so many people start to follow him that the leaders of not only their own religion, but also Rome start to get really nervous that he might be able to lead a revolution to overthrow us. How does that happen if all the guy's doing is walking around with like pithy little platitudes and sweet things that you can put on a bumper sticker? Like the only way really that you get that kind of following is, is that you're backing up what you're saying by, I don't know, walking on water or healing dead people, bringing them back from the dead or, or maybe taking a little boy's lunch and feeding 5,000 people plus with it. Because when you start doing stuff like that, people start to listen. Why else would they listen? And, and, and then, and then how, how do you explain? I, mean, it's, it's I don't know, part of why I'm on this is my son hit me up in the car the other day. He's like, Dad, I was talking to somebody about Jesus. And they said, well, well, how do you know? How do you really know? And he's like, man, I got stuck. And I used to have these conversations with him all the time when they were little. And, and there's a lot to consider. But I'm, you know, part, of, part of me is just thinking it's, it's so sad to me when people um, disregard things that are, that are not even historically on the table to disregard. Like, did Jesus of Nazareth exist? Yes. You can't find any, any decent historian that would even question that. Did Jesus die on a cross by the Romans? Yes. That's, we know that happened. Now, you can get into all kinds of conjecture about whether he rose from the grave or not, or disciples stole his body, or some other thing happened. But again, what's the most reasonable thing to assume? Why would his apostles choose to stick to a story that's going to mean total being totally ostracized from their own people and then hunted by the Romans for the rest of their existence until all of them save John end up martyred. Like, what's the motivation here unless he actually did rise from the grave? Like, what, what, what's the most reasonable thing to assume here? And, and maybe you, you know, and this, I did not do an exhaustive job by any means of, of going into all that, but my point is, man, this is not just, this is not the same as the Greek or Roman pantheon. This is not the same as believing in fairy tales. And when you just make that direct connection is that there's no historical anchoring to this, this story of God doing something to prove he is who he said he is. It, it, it's, it's not intellectually honest. So we should at least give it a good, vigorous, intellectual look. And then go where the evidence leads. Okay? And, 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 you know, I, I've heard some people say, okay, well, yeah, all right, maybe, maybe all that did happen, but Jesus just came along with, like, the most believable or best myth of all the myths, right? Like, somebody's myth was going to win out. And, and so the Christian myth is the best myth. But, but is it really? Is it really? Like, Christianity is riddled with all these incredibly difficult mysteries for the human mind to reconcile. Like, if I'm building a myth, I'm not going to make it, like, we've got this Trinitarian God that's it's one God in three persons, what? Or that, or that you need to try to swallow this pill. God is, Jesus is fully God, never stops being God, but also takes on the fullness of humanity. It's so much easier to understand him like, 
putting on a human skin or, or he's half and half or like, and there's all kinds of heresies that have risen out of people trying to make sense of the incarnation of Christ. But the Bible sticks to this idea. No, even though you don't get it, too bad. He's fully God and fully man. Deal with it. It's not even the best myth. It's crazy that a humble Galilean carpenter's son is God in the flesh and died to save you and then rose from the grave. It's wild, man. And that whole thing came out of a a little weird tribe out in the wilderness with a tent slaughtering cows and stuff. No, man, it, the, the one that should have won was the Roman pantheon. When Jesus popped up, the Romans were in power. The Caesars were seen as gods. They already had a fully established worship system that was headed towards, well, let's just kind of let everybody do their own thing. We'll be tolerant. That'll be cool. You know, Rome will have its thing. You got to pledge allegiance to Caesar, but, you know, if you've got some other little local deity or whatever, it's cool. Do your thing. That works way better with humans then no, there is one God who demands that you acknowledge that he is God alone, that you worship him alone, that his love for you is beyond compare, and you're going to have to do something about that. You're either going to have to reject that love or receive that love by faith. This is not the best myth by any means. (laughs) It's wild, and yet here we are. So you got to do something about that. Okay, that's it. Now, let's think about what this warning is actually about, okay? What does it say? Now now I'm I'm back to, I'm back to verse one. Don't panic. (laughs) This warning is actually about For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Okay? Now what? Well, start off here. Let's just make sure we realize that this drifting is the natural tendency. What does that mean? Okay? That means there is a current in this fallen world. There's a current, and it's moving away from God. It's a current that is fueled by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, by Satan and all of his little you know, attempts to overthrow God. So you've got, you've got dark spiritual forces at work. You've got the, the foolishness of our own flesh and our imperfection. There is a current in this world, and it's moving away from God, the natural tendency. What do you have to do to end up farther away from God? Nothing. Okay, so just there, there is an opposition to close proximity to God and, and staying in a place of mindful gratitude constantly for his gospel. So we need to realize that. And, and so in trying to conceptualize this in a way that I'm hoping is helpful and remember, all analogies break down eventually if you poke it hard enough. I'm just trying to give us a picture to, to perhaps help if you would imagine with me a, a, a very gentle and slow-moving river with a waterfall at the end, and at the bottom of that waterfall is a bunch of razor-sharp rocks, and those represent total decimation and destruction. Are you with me? 
Slow, gentle river. It is moving in a direction. Not pushing real hard. It's, it's almost, it's one of those rivers. You ever looked at a river and like, is that moving? And it's only like if there's a leaf on it or something that you're like, oh yeah, it is, but barely. That's what I have in mind. But at the end of that thing, you got a waterfall. At the bottom of the waterfall is decimation and destruction. All right? Now, I know this is weird. Just track with me. If you throw a dead person in that river, they're going over the falls for sure. Right? Might take a second. They're going over. However, someone who is alive can swim against the current. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive together with Christ. This is part of what that analogy is pointing us to. People have a hard time understanding what does that mean that we were dead? What does it mean now that we're alive? What is it? because I'm still not perfect. I've got this flesh to deal with. What, what does all that look like? Before Christ, you're like a dead body in a river. You're going over the falls. What Christ does and cut is comes and by his power gives you life. And now you have, the most natural thing for you to do will be swim away from the waterfall. But do we always? Hmm. Not only does Jesus make you alive and able to swim, he throws you a rope and he holds on to the other side. And you can trust and believe that his grip isn't going to slip and you aren't pulling him in the water. Okay? Let's just make sure the analogy's covering that. And, and, and that's the thing. That's part of what we're getting to here. God doesn't just want to keep you from going over the falls. God wants to pull you up on dry land and let you experience the joy of helping him throw ropes out for other people. It's really where he's trying to get you. And remember, every rope he hands us to throw is ultimately anchored to him because we can't hold it. You with me? That's important. But oftentimes what happens is we end up content to just roll over on our back and and drift on down the river, not put any effort in to getting closer to the one who's wanting to draw us up where we were made to be, which is next to him. And tragically, sometimes we excuse our lack of desire to swim against the current because we know Jesus won't let go of the rope. I just kind of go limp noodle here. Well, I know, I know he won't let go of his side. Why is that tragic? Because the fact that he won't let go is the very thing that should make us want to be near him more than anything. The fact that he is that loving and patient and kind and good and powerful. The fact that he can back up every single promise he's ever made and he's got a 100% perfect track record of doing so. What would make you be okay with just, eh, just hang out out here in the river, keep drifting farther and farther, doing my own thing? Part of what can contribute to that as well, it'd be good to ask ourselves this question. Because he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We should ask ourselves today, do we think of the grace of God as so great a salvation? Because if not, it would, it would be worth praying through why we don't. There could be lots of reasons, but, 
Maybe you don't think sin is that bad. Maybe, maybe the, the absolute grotesque nature of, of what it means to fight against a God this good, holy, perfect, and loving hasn't hit you yet. Maybe you don't understand yet why the sacrificial system required the shedding of blood to, to, to teach people that the, the wages of sin is death. That defying the God who is the source of life leads to death, and that's a just punishment. Maybe that hasn't hit you yet. And if it hasn't, then you're not going to see salvation as great. You see, and as an, as an add-on, maybe I can get some more bonus joy in my life by kicking it with this Jesus guy. Maybe your great need for him is not yet sunk in. Maybe you don't really think being a dead floater heading towards that waterfall is that big of a deal. Maybe you haven't even thought about there being a waterfall. Maybe you think too highly of humanity and too lowly of God and, and figure he owes it to us to rescue us somehow. These are all possibilities and there could be many more. But that, a good question for us today is do what I describe the grace of God as so great a salvation? Or as Jesus did in the metaphor he taught, the pearl of great price, worth giving up everything to have. Do I think of relationship with God, the salvation that he provides in that way? If not, why? And if not, Lord, please help me, because that's the right way to see it. Amen. Let's look at verses five through eight together. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, verses 6 through 8 are a quote from Psalm 8. It would be really good for you to read that in its entirety. It's it's only nine verses, so it won't take you very long. Um, But I do have to warn you, um, if, if you're old enough to remember WOW Christian CDs... You know what I'm talking about? Um, the, the beginning of the psalm and the end are the same. And, and they, they are these words. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? So if you don't know what wild Christian CDs are, you have no idea why I just said those words in that cadence and with that attempt at singing. Um, but if you do, beware, because now that song has been in my head for several days. <clears throat> Uh, and it's like drip torture. So, amen. It's a good truth to remember, even if the tone and cadence is not my fave. All right. Uh, okay. So, here's first, first one thing I want to say. I could have said this last week because last week was so focused on the superiority of Christ over angels, but I knew this was coming, and it really makes more sense to say it here. Uh, he did not subject to angels the world to come, considering what you're speaking. Now, you could read verses... Uh, six through eight, and you could think that it's talking about Jesus. Mm, and in one sense, kind of by extension, yes, maybe a little bit. But the, the real focus here, particularly go back to the Psalms, see what he's quoting, track with the point that he's making. Uh, th- this is really talking about the, the authority that God has given mankind, you and I, okay? Um, or really, more importantly, our first parents, uh, Adam and Eve. And so the, the point he's making is... Um, If you look at Genesis, God gave dominion to Adam, right? God made all these cool animals, but who named the animals? It wasn't God, it was Adam. And so God almost deputized, if you think about God, and this is, again, dumb analogy, but if if God's like the big boss sheriff, and 
you know, Adam is his deputy. He's working under, out of the authority of the boss, but he's got the authority to have dominion in this area. And mankind is supposed to be the stewards and caretakers of this earth that God made for us to dwell in, to be fruitful and to multiply and to tend the garden and all of that. And then what effectively happens is Satan comes along with an alternative idea that, no, actually, you shouldn't trust God. Um, actually, what he's trying to do is keep good things from you. Like, you should eat that fruit that he said don't eat, because if you do, uh, it's going to be really awesome. You're not going to die. God's a liar. Don't listen to him. He's just a party pooper, right? And so, functionally, instead of Adam using that authority and power he had been given by God to exercise dominion on God's behalf, he used that power and authority then to serve God's enemy. And in, in, then what happened was a temporary transition, where Adam lost that power. Which is tragic because that explains why so much is jacked up right now. Okay? But one thing we can ascertain from this is a distinction between angels and people. So I just want to take a moment to make sure we say this because it still is very surprising to me how often I encounter this idea. Throughout the first and second chapter of Hebrews, it has been made abundantly clear that humans and angels are different beings. And so I want to make sure you understand that we do not become angels when we die. Okay? And I, can under, I understand the confusion. Maybe somebody taught you that, and, and we can, I can understand where confusion would come from, because in Matthew 22, Jesus is being questioned about marriage. And what Jesus says is, you guys don't actually even understand the Scriptures. You're going to be like the angels when it comes to being in eternity with God, he didn't just say, you're going to be like the angels, period. It was, you're going to be like the angels in regards to marrying and being given in marriage. The idea being that in eternity, we do not have marriage the same way we have it here. Now, this is an opportunity for all of you husbands to very wisely go, aww. There you go. I, I just lobbed you that softball, husbands. You got to take those when I give them to you. Of course we're heartbroken about that, aren't we husbands? No, really, that, this is something that bothered me, particularly as a young Christian, because I very much love my wife, and I want to kick it with her for eternity. Uh, I think it's going to be cool. But, and so I was a little bummed out, like, what do you mean? Why would we not be married? And, but the Lord helped me with it. Ultimately, what, what that has to mean is, part of the experience of uh, the total eradication of sin among us uh, being in, in the full presence of God and, and healed of all of the jacked up brokenness that causes us to hurt one another instead of love each other well, whatever the relationship is going to look like among the redeemed of God for eternity, our relationship with God and then with each other, it's going to so far surpass what we experience in the here and now as marriage that we're not going to miss it. And that you may be able, not be able to stretch your imagination to get there yet. That, that's fine. I'm just telling you. That's... <laughs> whatever we're going to have in eternity with God is going to be way, way better than what we've had here. And that includes marriage. I'm looking forward to being, having that kind of loving, close fellowship with all of you for eternity. I'm, I'm looking forward to even seeing what that's like. That's going to be cool. Amen. So we don't become angels when we die. Um, and you might be thinking, come on, man, is that that big of a deal? You're being a theological neatnik. Like, what does it matter if people think they're going to get some angel wings and a harp and float around, whatever? Look, man, <clears throat> it does matter. 
because our destiny is far more glorious than that of the angels. And that's part of the writer's point in Hebrews. What would you say to a parent who raised their child and only ever told them that they're a servant to the family and treated them as such, never told them they're a child? You'd say, you're a crappy parent, wouldn't you? (gasps) Did he say crappy from the pulpit? Yeah, I just couldn't think of another word off the top. That's not a very good parent. Okay? Angels are servants of God and the writer says servants of us. We're sons and daughters. We are being, our destiny is to rule and reign with Christ in eternity. For the dominion Adam lost to be restored in its entirety. That's our destiny. So I don't, wanna, I don't want people to be sold short to think they're just going to be floating around, you know, playing harps and stuff. The future is far more glorious than that. But what we're, the big point of what we're seeing here is that what Adam lost, Christ took back. And we will never lose. As I told you, Genesis 1 tells us God made man in his image, gave him dominion over the earth. Verse 8 now highlights the problem with that. Like, so if God did that, so what are we observing now? In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. I think it's pretty clear. I don't think anybody's going to need much proof work to say it's clear that we are not in control of everything right now in any kind of really good way, right? Like, we, if we could magic wand a lot of this brokenness and jacked up stuff that all of us are experiencing right now, surely we would do that. That is not the situation we find ourselves in, Okay? So verse 8 highlights the problem. God gave dominion. Man lost dominion through disobedience. But what now? We have to bust into verse 9 to see the solution. So, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Things are not as they should be. Man is not connected to God. Man is not exercising the authority that God intended for him to exercise in the world. That's broken. So we don't see everything subjected to man in, in, as a steward of God, but, verse 9, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus came and solved the problem that Adam started. The dominion Adam lost, Jesus grabbed. You might say, well, are you sure? Sh- Sure. Let me, let me just point a couple interesting things out to you that I would, I would wager to guess you maybe have not noticed before. Is it not interesting? There's this weird line that describes Jesus' time fasting in the wilderness. Remember, he's baptized and then the Holy Spirit draws him out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. There's this weird line in there that says he was out there fasting and he was with the wild beasts. No other explanation what does that mean? Like, is Jesus out here riding tigers and stuff in the desert? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. I hope so. That'd be cool. But it does say he was, why even say that? Do we need to know he was with wild beasts to get the point that he's out here fasting and then the devil's going to tempt him? Like, the wild beast detail seems to bring no value to the narrative unless you start to think about the fact that mankind was supposed to have dominion over those beasts and Jesus was coming to get it back. Or, have you ever noticed this little idea that when Jesus says, hey guys, go get this colt that's tied up. I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. There's this little line in there, no further explanation. doesn't tell you why it tells you this. This colt had never been ridden on. So 
unless Jesus is a master rodeo cowboy, which we have nothing in the scriptures that says he had any rodeo training, that he's some kind of horse whisperer, is this not yet another little peak, another tilting of the hand by God to show you that the dominion Adam lost, Jesus was walking in? Because not only did men respond to him, even animals did. I hope there's video in heaven of whatever Jesus' wilderness petting zoo looked like out there. I mean, how cool. It had to have been rad. Okay. In every way that Adam failed his mission, Jesus succeeded. Adam could not hand down the dominion to further generations because he lost it. But Jesus can and has. We, coming up in Christ by faith, are now meant to walk in that same kind of dominion. It's not going to be the fullest expression of the final, but, but off, man, better than we oftentimes are, for sure. Seeing ourselves as having spirit-empowered dominion over the earth, as Christ followers, will change the way we live. Instead of whining and complaining about the brokenness in the world, we can rise up and take our rightful responsibility to bring healing to it. I am not suggesting that we try to solve all the world's problems. I'm suggesting we take responsibility for the pain in our own lives and the people around us. I'm suggesting we take responsibility and dominion in the areas that God grants us influence. The lives of people around us and the lives of people in front of us. Practically, what does that mean? That means you happen to see the needy person sitting there hungry. What's your response? Is it to move in responsibility? To feel a responsibility for that because you are a son or daughter of God and meant to walk in the dominion that Adam gave up but Jesus restored for us. Is that your problem or not? If it tends to be not, ask God to help you fix it. Because as a representative of Christ in this earth, it's your problem. Don't run from needs. Run towards them. And listen, think about this with me. What would change if each of us saw hurting people in need and things that are broken in this world because of sin, if we saw, each of us saw that as our responsibility because Jesus restored to us our rightful place as God's agents in the world. And I want to say this. I know that for many, the major hurdle here is seeing, you see yourselves as a weak victim sometimes, unable to address their own brokenness. And let me say this, at one level we are weak, but it's in admitting our weakness in the right way, which is to let our weakness point us to our great need for Christ's strength. In that we can find healing and help to overcome. And I also want to say this, there's, there is no semblance in the scriptures we're in today of, of a counterbalance to this point about a warning about drifting away and neglecting so great of salvation. And so the focus of today's sermon was to address us as these scriptures address us. But again, because I know this flock, I, I want to say, make sure you don't weight this warning to such a degree that you don't remember the motivation for God's call for you to not drift away. It's because of his desire for your ultimate good. It's because of his love for you. 
and that he is also merciful, compassionate, patient, and long-suffering. Because some of us in here today needed that check about the fact that sometimes we get lazy and we're okay to just drift down the river. Some of you are, are, are almost, you're, you're more prone to condemnation than others. You, you have a sensitive heart and don't ever change, but I don't want to break a bruised reed in that way by not counterbalancing what the writer had for us this, today, okay? So just remember that. Uh, God is merciful and patient, long-suffering and kind. It's the kindness of God that draws men to him, okay? This is it. The good news today, friends, is that Christ has not saved us only for a glorious future reign. He wants us to walk in this world here and now with dominion as reflections, okay? It's not going to be the same necessarily as Jesus in each of it. And I know there's people that would say, I'm I'm selling us short by saying we're not going to, because Jesus said we would do greater miracles than him. Look, man. God can do anything he wants at any time through any of us. Yes and amen. I'm 100% with that. However, I think practically sometimes what us walking in dominion is it's going to be more that we are reflections of God's divine love and power in the world. But I think oftentimes we're not even doing that. And I think the call here is to that at least. Jesus did not run and hide from the pain sin has brought into the world. He faced it head on, and so can his followers by faith. That's the good news today. That's what I see us called to by God's grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for these verses, these first few verses of chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. I thank you, God, for not only the the, the depth of argumentation we're encountering, but also the, the practical application. Thank you for helping us to see how this all played out. Help us, thank you for giving us an understanding of why things look the way they look and what it is that you're calling us to do about it. I thank you that anything we're gonna do about it is gonna be by your strength and your power, by your anointing. God, we can do nothing of our own. You're the vine, we're the branches. Apart from you, we do nothing. But God, we, we want to walk in everything that you actually are calling us to do by your power. And sometimes, Lord, we talk ourselves out of it. Sometimes uh, we shrink back in fear for various reasons. And God, I ask that uh, we would see things as, as they really are. That though Adam lost, gave up dominion, that Jesus came and did everything he didn't, that he grabbed it back, that the keys to death, hell, and the grave, they belong to the master. And that we are called now to be agents of light and love and change. Reflections, Lord, of your goodness and glory in the earth. Lord, help us to desire that above the things that distract us from it. And uh, continue, Lord, by your grace and mercy to do the great work you promised to do. I thank you, Lord, you don't let go of your end of the rope. We're counting on it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.